0: One thing we enjoy doing as a church is singing songs that are new, um, written in the last few years by the people of God, and also singing songs that, uh, as long as they're singable, um, we're not really doing Gregorian chants or anything like that, if you've ever heard one of those, but singing songs that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, songs like A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther or ancient hymns like, Be Thou My Vision. So it connects us with the people of God across all times and in all places. So Let's pray now and ask the Lord to be our vision. Just like my glasses are my vision right now, I can not see at all without them. I wouldn't be preaching from the notes anyway without them. Um, we want the Lord to be our vision to help us see all of life His way for His eye. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have become our vision through Jesus Christ, that the God who spoke light into the darkness has shown the light of Christ into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I just ask that you would be our vision this morning as we lift your word, and that you would stir up our hearts um, by what we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible that you brought, or uh, we have Bibles under the chairs in front of you, um, there's hymn books under there too, so don't get confused. If you're looking for Acts in the hymn book, you will not find it. Um, But Acts, right after the four Gospels, the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This part of the book of Acts is, I think, one of maybe the most quoted sections of the book. So, to catch you up to speed with where we've been in this book, um, the, the spirit of Jesus in Acts 2 has just filled the church with power 50 days after Passover where Jesus died as a sacrificial lamb. Now it's Pentecost, 50 days later. Penta, in the Greek word five, right? And 50 days later, they're filled with power. And then Peter gets up and preaches, and 3,000 people, at the end of our time last week, we saw 3,000 people were cut to the heart and turned to the Lord. Now, this morning, we're in the immediately after section. So after the sermon, and people turn to Christ in, by the thousands, this is what happens next. Acts 2. 42 47. Luke describes for us, Luke is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, part one of a two-part volume, Luke-Acts, part one is Luke, part two is Acts. Um, Luke here describes for us the type of community that the spirit of Jesus creates. This is why I think that this sac- section of Acts gets quoted by people so much. It's It gives us a little snippet of what the church of Jesus looked like in their very early days. Kind of what you'd see as maybe like the the honeymoon phase of the, the church before conflicts start to arise. It's a time before persecution breaks out against the believers. In other words, it's a time before everyone starts wanting to kill Christians. It's a time before... Uh, the the tragic deceit and lying in the death of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. It's a time before the racism that we read about in Acts chapter 6 pops up where the Greek widows in the church are being ignored while the Hebrew widows are being cared for. This is a time in the church's life before we read about Things like Paul and Barnabas, two key leaders, having a bitter disagreement, so much so that they part ways. We could go on about all the various weaknesses and sins and blunders of the Church of Jesus Christ as recorded in Acts. But we need to focus on this passage this morning. But the reason I bring up some of these tragic examples right now is to say that there is no perfect church and there never was. The grass is never greener on the other side, right? Um, There's... In every church, okay, there's often sweet and restful seasons that we're going to read about. Sweet and restful seasons of church life that God's people... Can <clears throat> together. We pray for those sweet and restful Acts two forty two to forty seven seasons. These seasons of church life, where the waves seem calm and everybody seems to like each other, right? Those are what their tastes of what life in the new creation is going to be like when sin and death are no more, and when heaven and earth become one. Their precious tastes this scene in Acts 2 is one of those precious moments but as anyone who read any of Paul's letters knows all was not calm and peaceful in any of the churches that he planted Right? <laughs> um, the reason he's writing these letters are did you forget the gospel guys like Jesus is alive <laughs> live for him did you forget that your family? Stop trying to destroy each other. Okay, so... So... This snippet of the church... There's so many people that read this and they are like... Oh! If we could only just get back to the way church was... In Acts. Where everything was perfect and everything was right. It's like, well... There is no golden age for the church. There was a golden moment... But we are living in a broken world. And so... Remember this little snippet. It's a beautiful picture, but um, and it was a gift to the church, but it didn't last. Uh, but it's the it's what the Spirit is always aiming at. So even though it doesn't last, it doesn't mean we go well. Forget it. I can never achieve this. No, the Spirit can create this and loves to create this in the midst of the people of God. So let's read Acts two, forty two to forty seven. They devoted themselves the favor of all the people. Everybody loved them. <laughs> and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here's the main thing that Luke wants us to see here. That's right there, and the main idea on your handout. The ascended Lord Jesus builds, grows, a joyfully devoted church. Ascended Lord Jesus, the one we read ascended into heaven, took the throne at the beginning of Acts. He grows now from heaven by the power of the Spirit, a joyfully devoted church. And there's going to be three things that we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at the things that the church of Jesus is devoted to in verse 42. Second, we're going to look at the type of hearts that were behind the devotion of this church community. And then we're going to focus on the significance of the statement in verse 47 that it was the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who is adding to those who are being saved. Jesus is the one growing this church. So three points. One, a devoted church. Two, a glad-hearted and sincere church. And three, a growing church. And again, if you put these together, you have the main idea. The Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, built a joyfully devoted church. Point one, a devoted church. I'll read verse 42 again. And I want you to listen for four things that Christians devoted themselves to, as the Spirit filled them. They devoted themselves to, one, the apostles' teaching, two, the fellowship, three, to the breaking of bread, and four, to prayer. And we're going to work our way through each one of these. What we're going to see is that this verse is like a summary verse of all the things that the church was doing in Acts. Several things these four things are unpacked further in verses 43 to 47. Okay? So the first thing that they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. The importance of the teaching and the preaching of the twelve apostles of Jesus, and later on, Paul, the apostle chosen to reach the Gentiles, uh, These teachings were of utmost importance to the early church. In fact, the teachings of the apostles of Jesus, that's what the entire New Testament is made up of. What is the New Testament in the Bible that one quarter of the Bible at the front or back, I don't know which way you open it, right? What, What is that made of? It is made up of the teachings of the apostles. We don't have the apostles among us today, the original apostles, although people do debate whether we should call missionaries apostles or sent ones. That's a different uh, debate for a different day, but we don't have the original 12 apostles with us today. We don't have people who have seen the Lord Jesus with their eyes, but we have their words their teachings, we have their interpretation of the Old Testament, and their words are to us the words of our Lord Jesus, because they taught us what Jesus taught to them. They were just writing and doing and preaching and teaching what Jesus, the Lord, had told them to do. So, I want you to listen now as I read to you Jesus' command to the apostles to do this very thing. Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, Jesus, as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven's throne, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end the age. Now, while this command to go to disciple people, to baptize people, it applies to us too. as followers of the Apostles' teaching, it was most directly given to the Apostles to teach everything that Jesus had commanded. And so, they are doing this in everything that they write. They're the ones who literally heard the commands of Jesus, and they are The gospel about Jesus' rule and reign, the good news about his rule and reign from heaven, straight from his mouth. They saw him rise from the dead and appear to them after They were the ones who sat, these apostles, they sat with Jesus for hours and hours after his resurrection, listening to him unpack all the scriptures. And how the Old Testament writings, the first records of our Bible, are all about Him and pointed to Him, and were fulfilled in what He did. Can you imagine being part of those classes for the first forty days of Jesus's post-resurrection life, as He's appearing in their midst at one time to five hundred people at once, walking? them on the road, breaking bread with them, eating fish with them. He's no ghost. And teaching them, opening their minds to see that this whole Old Testament is pointed towards a rescuer who's coming. And Jesus is that one. And then Jesus ascends and the apostles take his words and they preach it they teach it, and they write it. And Luke is giving us an account of what they preached and taught and wrote. He's preserving the apostles' teachings for us. This is why when we gather together as a church, what we're doing right now, is my goal as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, to devote myself and to my sermons to the apostles Teaching. I don't want anything to be original to me, my clever ideas, my thoughts about what this world needs. No, I want to devote myself and lead us in devoting ourselves together on a Sunday morning to the apostles' teaching. We believe their teachings are the teachings of Jesus. And when we preach the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that they didn't write— we want to preach the Old Testament the way the apostles and Jesus taught us to preach it. They quote, or allude to, more often they just kind of allude to it, and we'll see one of those today. They allude to the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Everything they wrote was, the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus. And here's how you live now that the Jesus, the king that the Old Testament told us about, has arrived. Okay? So we devote ourselves to their teaching and toward when we read the old testament we read it in light of their teaching and the second thing they devoted themselves to is the fellowship now when you and i throw around the word fellowship i think we usually mean by fellowship something like you know nachos at carl's house on tuesday night Right? Or um, a fire at the Aubrey's in their backyard. We had good fellowship. Okay? And the word in the, the, the word fellowship used here in the Bible, some of you may have heard the Greek word before, koinonia. It means fellowship is how we often translate it. It, 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 it does include that. It, it, I'm not saying that's not what it means. It, but it's more than that. It's more than that. A better translation might be the word sharing or partnership. Partnership, sharing or partnering in life together for a common mission, a common goal. The apostles and the early disciples devoted themselves to, literally here it's the word, the partnership, the sharing, the fellowship, the sharing of all of life. Now, the verses that follow in Acts 2... Uh, 44 to 46, they unpacked some of this partnering and what it looked like. So this is the fellowship that Paul is, or, or Luke is describing. How, how did they partner? Verse 44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, old and young, Greek, barbarian, right? They, they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Not just an hour and a half on Sundays. Um, I'm going to read another place in Acts where this same thing is described. You can flip there if you want a page over. Acts 4, 32 to 35. There the apostles are praying. The house is shaken. The Spirit fills them again. And, verse 32 of chapter 4, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. In other words, they they, they didn't say, this is mine, not yours. They, They said, God has given this to me, how can I use it for blessing others? They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For the time, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who has need. As a church, we have a helping hand fund, that is the vision behind that. To eliminate needs as we are able in the body of Christ. If you have a need, please let us know. And we will see what we can do. This phrase, there was no needy person among them, is taken from the Old Testament. Remember I said they they allude to the Old Testament constantly? Hundreds of times. They don't usually say and now I'm quoting the Old Testament. They do that, like Peter did that in a sermon. Like he said in the book of Psalms. Usually it's just they expect you to know these things, because they do. You know, say so you gotta really know the word. Or, like I do, lean on commentaries and people who know the word better than I do, even and they say, Hey, by the way, he's quoting this. Okay? That's why a great study Bible will point out a lot of these things. So the no-needy person is actually taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 4 to 5. And there In Deuteronomy, writing many years before, Moses says to God's people Israel, there need to be no poor people among you. For in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey Yahweh your God and carefully follow all these commands I am giving you today. So in other words, what Moses is saying way long ago is that if Israel gave themselves as a people to obeying God perfectly in the promised land that they were going to enter, they would experience his blessing, the blessing that Adam lost in the garden land way back when and replaced by the curse. They would experience God's blessing again in the the land and there would be a radical community of loving neighbor and there would be no needy people in Israel. Now, anybody shout it out. Did this happen in Israel? Yes or no? right? Israel was broken. They needed to be restored under a true king. That's what the apostles ask at the beginning of Acts. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to fix what's broken about Israel? And Jesus says, um, it's not for you to know the times, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, witnesses to the king. And the restoration is going to begin through them. And so here we see that, at least in this little snippet of the church life, the restoration of Israel is started. Needs are being eliminated. The brokenness of Israel is being fixed under the reign of the best of kings. The king of kings. Alright? Now before we move on, the next thing that the apostles devoted themselves to, I want to pause and say that over these Over the years, these two passages about radical sharing have unfortunately, I think, been abused a little bit. So I want to maybe shut some doors that might open in our minds as we think, wow, everything in common? Some have taken the phrase in chapter 4 that no one said anything was their own to mean that Christians shouldn't own anything. In the most extreme uses of this passage, Christians have formed kind of like hippie-like communes where private property is actually completely forbidden. And in the most extreme examples, people even share their wives and share their marriage relationships. One example of this that went really crazy was the German city of Münster in the days of Martin Luther. If you'd like to read about that, you can just Google Martin Luther, Munster, M-U-N-S-T-E-R. The Anabaptists really took this passage and just completely unhinged it from everything else Scripture said. And it, it's tragic. Okay? But this pops up from time to time. Um, usually there's a modern example of it where, let's just go back to Acts 2 and we'll eliminate everything and we'll just share everything and it sounds great. But I don't think private property is being forbidden. Here, by Luke's statement, Christians had all things in common. Nor did the fact that they sold their homes mean that they no longer had any homes. For example, in the book of Acts, we read of many Christians who have houses. Simon the Tanner has a house that Peter stays at. Simon's sharing his house with Peter, okay? He's not saying, no, this is my house, you can't stay here, Peter. That's, That's the idea, all right? And uh, Judas, who lives on Straight Street, has a house in Damascus that Ananias apparently is at as well. When he prays for Saul to receive his sight, go to Judas's house on Straight Street. Oh, Judas, you should have sold your house and had everything in common. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Or, or Lydia later on, the, the lady who comes to Christ, the to seller of purple cloth, probably a very wealthy woman who has a church start meeting in her house. Look, it's her house, but she's sharing it with the people of God as she's able. Then we see people selling houses. That doesn't mean that they're saying, "Now I've got my family and they're homeless, um, and now that we're a burden to the church, we're going to move into you, because, move into your house because we sold our house." Um, I, I don't think that's what's being said here. we got to read all of scripture together, right? And, and, and try to wrestle with what is being so, um, communicated. I think Jesus wants this radical sharing to happen in the church, where we don't just view our possessions as ours and ours alone. Yes, they might belong to us, but we share. We hold them with open hands. My car is yours if you need it. You all know the man van, the white van. Uh, now it's got insulation fibers in it for any of you who follow the man van's journeys on Facebook. But, uh, anyhow, um, you can use it if you need a vehicle. Um, that's just an example. There's so many other ways to. We have been blessed by so many, you know? Our church met in the Becklers' home for a whole year because they shared their home with us. Radical sharing. My money is yours if you have a need and I'm able to meet it. Back Then my cloak is yours. This, this type of generosity at partnering, it's a picture of how Jesus shared his life with us. Totally. Now, this kind of radical sharing can obviously be distorted and abused as sin creeps in and we'll see some of that happen even in acts in the story of ananias and sapphira they sell their house but they lie about how much they actually that we're giving it all to the lord all two hundred and forty thousand or whatever it was because we are so generous and we saw that Joseph did that, and everybody starts calling him Barnabas. He gets a great name. Joseph sells his field, and they call him Barnabas, the encourager. Uh, he sells his house. So we want to sell our house and maybe get new names like he did. we want, and, and, and they do it, and they deceive the brothers, but Peter, but the spirit sees through it, and the Lord strikes them dead. So, sobering, sobering stuff. This sharing can be hijacked by sin. Others became selective with who they shared stuff with, overlooking people who were different than they were. We're not told, um, you know, so so again, I read earlier with the Greek women being overlooked by the Hebrew women. We'll, we'll get into that. Now, we're not told this happened, but I just want to share one more danger that can come up with This radical sharing mentality. um, A danger that can sometimes come into Christian circles. And this is the danger of entitlement. In a culture where we want to share things with each other, we want to have everything in common, it's important that we protect from feeling entitled to each other's things. Or time. There's always a danger when we start to think, hey, I'm your brother in Christ, and so I'm entitled to everything you own. And you should and you ought to share it with me at any time, for any reason, as I determine, for free. Even if I can technically afford to pay you for your stuff and maybe bless you and respect you by showing that I value your time and your things, instead you start to feel like, You owe me, because you have what I don't, and I want it. And we're all supposed to share. And you didn't give it to me. What this does, this type of mentality, and this happens a lot with Christians that have talents in the trades. Um, Maybe you've been there. Maybe you understand, right? Um, If you just assume, like, for example, I'll just use an example. My brother Ben's an electrician. If I just assume, assume that my brother, because he's my brother, and my brother in Christ, he owes me his undying services for free at my house at any call, um, unpaid, what happens is I take away the gift that he's able to give me if he does want to volunteer those services. So in other words, if I assume, of course he's going to work for me for free, then he can't actually share his time with me for free if he wanted to. So if you say, Ben, you work really hard. I'd like to pay you for your time when I'm able. Maybe I'm not able in the moment. Maybe I am able, but I really want to pay you. And he says, no, this is for free because Jesus gave me his life. Or he might say, no, actually, there's a huge need. Our car just broke, and I can really use the money. Um, and we, we partner with each other to meet each other's needs, right? That's what I'm talking about. Or just just saying, look, I want to honor your stuff. I want to honor your time that you spent with me. We don't want to have this entitled mentality in the church. It's actually really subtle and really dangerous. And I've really struggled with this in my life. Like, I'm kind of pretty free and sharing with my stuff, but so I assume everybody else is going to just be like this. And, you know, of course I can take the cookies off your counter or the donuts out of your cup. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just because we might be more free with stuff, we need to respect each other as well. And realize we're all on this journey together, of learning how to share, and we want to we want to give people the opportunity to do it, not just expect that they might. So, that's, I didn't get that from the book of Acts, I just got that from living my Christian life, trying to share and realizing I, I don't always do it well. Um, so, the next thing I want to look at is that the church was breaking bread together. See that in verse 2? They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread there in verse 46. We read a little bit more about this in verse 46. So 42, they broke bread. Uh, 46, they broke bread in their homes, so he elaborates, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, Bible teachers and commentators who write on this, they did debate whether this is a reference to having the Lord's Supper together every day and, and eating, um, the doing communion every day, or Or they're eating, this is a reference, breaking bread is a reference, just eating a meal together. I tend to think it's both. It's a meal which involves the Lord's Supper. um, And they're doing this as a group together. But either way, eating and drinking together was something that these, that in the ancient world, and even in the modern age, families did, ate and drank together in homes, close friends did. And here you have these early Christians eating and drinking together regularly in their homes. They were a close-knit family. They didn't just limit their time with other believers to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. They actually sought to be a part of each other's lives in a a regular and close way. And doing their times together, they prayed. They prayed a lot. You see that in verse 42? They devoted themselves to... Prayer. Prayer is talking to God. And these first Christians, they talk to God constantly. They talk to God together. Now I just want to pause here and encourage you to pray in front of other Christians. When you pray in front of another believer, it's a huge encouragement to other Christians. Wow. Wow. I'm not alone in my faith. Other people talk to God too. They talk to God on my behalf. They're praying for me. Hearing somebody pray for you is such a precious gift. It's a gift my parents gave to me again and again and again. I want to give it to my children and to my family. And it's an encouragement when people give that gift, and sometimes the more simple and childlike the prayer, the more encouraging. Going on and on with big polished words, the Pharisees were good at that. Jesus wants us to pray from the heart. Prayer is talking to God and talking to Him together. Now. There's many reasons we might not want to talk to God in front of other Christians. Reasons that might range from, I just don't feel like it today, or um, I'm afraid of looking stupid. I'm gonna ask you. Well, maybe you have a different reason that you struggle with it. Oh, I think everyone struggles at some point. I mean, I've been nervous to pray in front of other people from time to time in my life. Ask God for help. Ask him to give you a desire to talk to him and encourage. Just to open your mouth and go for it. Develop that muscle of saying something to God with your family listening. You don't sound stupid to the Father. He loves. Here's a, here's an illustration for anyone who's ever watched a little child learn to talk. When they say their first words, as the parent, like. That's ridiculous. You don't say thank you like that. You don't say thank you like, thinku, of No, you celebrate. Ah, oh, they're learning to talk, right? Our Heavenly Father celebrates simple baby talk. <laughs> they're learning to talk to the one who made them. What a precious thing. And other Christians celebrate it too. Christians whose hearts are in tune with the Lord, right? They're not going... Man, that wasn't very polished. Jeez. You need to turn up the spiritual performance if you're going to pray in front of other people. No, that's not what's going on. We celebrate. The Spirit loves to come and help us pray. But we have to take that step in faith. Sometimes He's not going to embolden you to pray until you just start. And then He helps in a moment of weakness. And when we pray out loud, we encourage each other. And now... The second main thing is that this church, they're a devoted church in all four of those ways, but they were also a glad-hearted and sincere church. All of their devotion wasn't just like, well, we're just doing our Christian duty here. <clears throat> we're going to share because it it's our duty. It's what we got to do. And we're going to pray because we just got to suck it up and pray because that's what God wants us to do. So tighten your belt and pray. No, that's not what's being described here, right? It's glad-hearted and sincere. Verse 46, their hearts were glad. Now, that doesn't mean they also went around with pasty, fakey, fake smiles, saying, everything's good, I'm just happy, happy. No, this gladness is a deep, unshakable joy that comes from knowing that the worst thing that could happen to them, death and separation from God, has been defeated by their king. Nothing could eternally happen to their souls. Jesus has forgiven them. He's defeated death, He's paid for hell. So their gatherings are not marked by grumblings and complainings about how bad the world's getting. Or did you see that on the news? Or can you believe Caesar's new policy? It's horrible. No, they were glad gatherings, they rejoiced in the Lord together. And they gave him glad-hearted praise. See that in verse 47? They're praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. Now, the favor that the people in Jerusalem showed them didn't last forever. We know that. We know that gladness is always a struggle. But um, even when they lost the favor of men, as we read in Acts 5, verses 40 to 42... They are rejoicing, rejoicing because they're counted worthy to suffer for the name. Their joy in the Lord here was unshakable in Acts 5 and all throughout the book. Because he lives, so shall they. No matter what people say about them, their king loves them, has given them his life. And will raise their bodies no matter what. So, unshakable gladness in the Lord is what marked these early believers, and it only comes to us one way. You can't just be glad, be glad, make it happen. It grows in our souls as we saturate our minds and our hearts in the love of Jesus Christ. For us, love in the past, dying and rising for us, love in the present, he's with us, no matter what, he's with us, and love in the future, that our hope is fixed, certain, secure, our king is coming again, he will make all things new, the story is not over, Jesus will win, they're a glad-hearted church, they're not mopey. They're not cynical, doom and gloom. They're not a naysaying, backbiting, grumpy, angry, world-avoiding church. Oh, Lord, may our church, be, my life, be marked by this unshakable gladness. Gladness. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul writes a whole letter with a the main theme. You're poor. You're being persecuted, Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord and the strength of God. Is my, again, I would say rejoice, glad-hearted praise, and they're sincere of heart. Another way of saying this is simple-hearted. There is sincere-hearted church. Their joy, like I said earlier, it wasn't fake, it wasn't forced. Their praise for the Lord, their love for each other, their witness to the loss was sincere. It was real. Everybody nowadays is longing for authentic, real community. Encounter the real risen Lord. Have a relationship with the real king of the universe who knows you to the bottom of your heart, and you will begin to be real. You won't be afraid of your sin and of sharing it with others. Look, I need help, because you know that your brothers in Christ need the same help. We're all in this together, and we are glad for a Savior together sincere and glad hearts and now here's the main third main thing they were a growing church this one's quick verse 47 the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved here you see it's the Lord who adds and it is the Lord who saves I want you to know as a church leader this is a really comforting verse so comforting the Lord adds to their number and it's daily People are getting saved and following Jesus every single day. This is a massive move of the Holy Spirit in this city of Jerusalem. A massive move. Now, this type of massive turning of hearts to the Lord has happened at hundreds of different times and in hundreds of different places throughout the history of the church. Many times accompanied by miraculous things. Powerful movings of the Spirit. It could happen again. It could happen in our area, as it once did back in the days of Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening. Our call is to be faithful. Because though the Lord does the adding of the number, and though the Lord Jesus does the saving of the sinners, it is God's people who do the preaching and the sharing of the word (coughs) and the praying. And the gathering, so that the world may see what the assembly of the new creation looks like on earth. The risen Christ has the power to open eyes and hearts to the serious of sin, and to cut the hearts like He did after Peter's sermon on that day, where three thousand were saved. So, as we conclude our time, I just want to ask you, and I want you to ask yourself these three or these four questions that I've been asking myself as I've let this passage land on me. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Are you devoting yourself to the teaching of the apostles? One sign that God's Holy Spirit is at work in your life is that you have a hunger for God's word, A hunger for the Bible. Are you hungry... If not, what are you hungry for instead? What is filling that time? What are you distracted by? I know my own heart, I get distracted by news. By blog articles. Sometimes by books about the Bible. What gets in the way of soaking in the Word? Facebook? Ask God, God, awaken in my soul a hunger for your word. The Spirit of God loves to give his people, his true saints, a hunger for the word of God. And second, the early church, they devoted themselves to partnership, to radical sharing of life together. So I want to ask you, how can we grow in this as a church? What may be holding you back from it? One thing that holds us all back, we talked about this at our sermon discussion, in in this modern age of mobility with cars and planes, we can drive all over. We can be in many places at many different times. And even if we aren't physically present in all places at all times, we can try to be mentally present all the time, everywhere through the digital connectivity of our phones and computers. So in this modern age, we face an almost godlike drive to be use our tools to be omnipresent. There's a good thing happening over there, and I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. I want to benefit from it. I want to help. I want to learn. Devoting ourselves everywhere, all at once. The church has not faced this ever in 1,900 years like we faced it in the last, oh, really, the last 20 with the smartphone. And the more affordability of air travel. Which leads us to be less devoted to partnering right where God has placed us. To the people right in front of us. Because we always have an option to move away and go somewhere else. An option that for many years in history, Christians didn't have. So, we can always drive further to go to church, right? And we have that option. People didn't have that option back then. But they had their own challenges. Like you met with believers and you might go to jail. That was a challenge. Every every place has challenges. Everything we say yes to is a no to something else. When I'm at the table with my family and I'm saying yes to my phone, I'm saying no to my kids. And I need help with that. My wife was. Very good at helping with that. Thank you, Lord. Yes, thank you, Lord. But I want to do it on my own. (laughs) Put the flipping phone on the desk and then go to the table, right? We want to be present. We need wisdom. I don't want you to be feeling a weight of guilt. We are in this together, people of God. We need wisdom. So pray and I. Everything we say yes to God. Where are you calling me? Where is it going to be best? How can I partner best with the people you've placed immediately in my life? Third, the early church devoted themselves to eating in each other's homes. Not everyone would have had a home that people could eat in back then, but those that did were always eating with their spiritual family. Now, up until pretty recently in human history, families usually ate together regularly. That's getting more and more rare in our modern Age because the modern family is devoted to a hundred other good things, because they can be, because we have the cars to get there and the phones to connect there, and we we can. But just because we can doesn't mean it's good or right or healthy for us. You have to be wise. Sometimes kids go to college for the first time and they get just overwhelmed by like. 100 tables at the, 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 the fair, you know, just, you know, the, the welcome to college thing, like, here's a 100 groups you can be a part of. And it was funny at Moody, you know, you'd have to, these people who try to do it all. And uh, they're also a student. Right? Um, we have to pray about these things. When the church eats together like a family, very different people, totally unrelated, eating at the same table together, with nothing in common except for Jesus, it pictures the power of the gospel to make family out of those the world would maybe even see as enemies. Jews and Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, old and young, men and women, brought together around the cross as a family. And fourth and finally, the early church devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was not a ta- tack on at the end of their study of the apostles' teaching, as sometimes In our Bible studies today, we can treat prayer as a tack on it. Better pray. Wrap this up. 30 seconds. Go. Prayer wasn't something that just the professional prayers did. Prayer was what all the believers did all the time on every occasion they got together. They prayed so much and so long that people who didn't really have a relationship with God were probably so bored out of their minds they left. They prayed and they prayed, right? And God showed up in power and thousands were saved prayer, talking to God. May we be a church devoted to prayer. And if you struggle, maybe you've never prayed aloud in front of someone else. There was a time when I had never done that, right? Ask God for help. Ask God to lift your eyes above yourself, to look at Him and to look at your brothers and sisters and what might I be able to pray for them right now. Maybe it's just a simple Lord, help so-and-so at work. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, I encourage you. Let's talk to the Lord. And let's do that right now together. Lord, we read a section of scripture like this, and I know for myself, I need your Spirit's help. So I pray that you would do that. That you would stir up in our hearts. A longing to be together, to break bread together, to eat together, to, to have glad-hearted praise and be together, and to pray together. It was wisdom how we use our time in such a busy age. We need your help. I need your help. We could get on a plane and go to Florida. I think it was good. I think it was right. We needed that. It felt like, but hundred years ago, we wouldn't have had that option. So we just need you with And uh, Father, I just pray that you would help us to be a light for Jesus in the way that we do community here at this church. In Jesus' name, amen.